0: Paramedic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest.
1: Hello everybody, welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. I've resorted to some clever alliteration today. The title of our podcast today is Paralytic Pharma Festival. And can't see my outline, but we're starting all those with pHs. So it's kind of corny. So corny warning before we get started. Joining me today is our (laughs) medical director, Dr. Rob Dixon. Good afternoon, everyone. Andy Adams is on the board. And we're going to talk today about paralytic pharmacology and the different paralytics that we encounter in the pre-hospital setting. There's going to be a real quick ignore the elephant in the room disclaimer before we get started. Today's podcast is not a discussion of the utility the merits of pre-hospital advanced airway management Um, rsi dsi versus supraglottic airways Uh, we practice delayed sequence intubation with paralysis here at mchd i know there are multiple thoughts on on this topic and different sides that folks can take that's not the purpose of the discussion. That's not part of the discussion. We are strictly going to talk about the different paralytic options. If you use paralytics out there and talk about the pros and the cons, the dosing, the side effects, the indications, contraindications. So before we, before we even get going, I just, just wanted to clear that up. Um, It's a huge topic uh, and it's a huge decision. And I think that's before we even get into the physiology or the pharmacology, we paralyze a patient we take away uh, their ability to breathe and that has to be one of the most if not the most uh, serious well thought out practiced decisions that we make in whether it's the pre-hospital environment or the ed environment for that matter
0: yeah absolutely i mean we feel like and we've always been trained you know gosh sedation Uh, and paralysis give you your best optimal intubator view but understanding that this all goes back to the patient what is the safest approach for that particular patient at that particular time and it may not be paralysis it may not be uh, even sedation assisted intubation so keep that in mind as we're going through this this discussion it's mainly going to be to cover the pharmacology and your different options out there and all of them have to be considered right whenever we get ready to uh, contemplated DSI we should be planning right you should be thinking you know have I maximized my non-invasive bag valve mass do I have OPMP what are my backups am I using all the tools and my arrows in my quiver um, to make this a success and safe uh, procedure for the patient am I using by manual manipulation have I repositioned do I have a SGA ready and ultimately am I ready to do a surgical airway if I have a failure to intubate and failure to oxygenate situation?
1: Yeah, and I left off the list there because it's included in our protocol requirements here at MCHD, but is my tube preloaded with a bougie? Uh, so Absolutely. So for service, yeah. services out there that don't require bougie use, I mean, I, the, the evidence is there, uh, bougie-assisted intubation is, is the way to go. So if you're going to do this, I think you need to become familiar with using a bougie with uh, you know, the orientation uh, the anatomy the feel that, for lack of a better term for how how bougie use works because you know why do we paralyze the patient we paralyze the patient so that their vocal cords and their neck musculature and their interthoracic mus- musculature is entirely relaxed so that we get the best look possible what other things other things go along with that besides just paralysis again it's the positioning it's the equipment that we use it's our choice of equipment whether it's you know at this how much
0: we practice with said equipment there was a great article out last week um that was talking about uh the uh, more of a commentary really of you know we all want to say if you want to all do dl but then we keep a video scope there for a backup but it usually will go that you'll use one primary tool all the time but then on the most difficult one that you can't get with that tool you pick up a backup that you may have only picked up once in the previous year and so this article um, kind of focused more on trying to it was more of a promoter of, of video laryngoscopy and not just using it for for rescue but using it as a primary tool now here at mchd we do use video uh, laryngoscopy with a king vision device uh, and a uh, uh, bougie is the primary device.
1: So, just a little bit of uh, paralytic preaching, sort of to get yeah. to get started before we uh, dive into the details. Doctor
0: P is going to get into the uh, geeky neuromuscular junction physiology, and I'm going to take a nap.
1: If you hear snoring, it's Doctor Dixon. He's got some sleep apnea issues, so <laughs> he he might he might need he might need the BiPAP in the next room. So, when we paralyze a patient, I, geeky aside it's important for us to know how the medicines that we use work um, and why they work because that's the foundation of why we use them Um, nerve fibers innervate our muscles uh, and tell our muscles when to contract and when to relax that's the essence of the neuromuscular junction sounds real complicated the nmj we start to use acronyms and we forget what the basis is well the nerve fiber has to signal the muscle fiber to contract. That's, again, that's the neuromuscular junction. What happens there? How does that signal, how is it transmitted? And that signal is transmitted by the neurons releasing acetylcholine. Acetylcholine receptors are present on the muscle end, so the postsynaptic, the the end portion of that signal, and when the acetylcholine hits those receptors, the muscle cell is stimulated to contract. That happens through sodium and potassium channels that open with stimulation uh, of the acetylcholine receptor. That all sounds super nerdy, I know, but knowing that those are sodium potassium channels is important. We'll talk about why in a bit. Knowing that acetylcholine is involved is important because that's what some of these medications are made to act like and look like. Knowing that acetylcholine receptors are there on the muscles to allow the, the stimulation, the activation is important because we have other medications that work directly on that receptor that aren't acetylcholine analogs. So let's talk about the two, what are the two main classes of agents? When we learn these in, in, in pharmacology class or in you know, our, our most basic level, how do we learn the, the two classifications?
0: Right, so it's depolarizing and non-depolarizing. It's how they act at that end plant, uh, muscle receptor on the postsynaptic junction. So succinylcholine binds to that acetylcholine receptor. It activates it, and it depolarizes it, right? We all see fasciculations and things after we give the succinylcholine. It depolarizes completely all those muscles, and it, it takes a while to unbind from that. So it, it competitively inhibits or, or kind of gloms onto that. It activates that the muscle cell, and then it kind of sticks there for a while, and it takes a while to, uh, to unbind. So that's how it works. So it's a depolarizer, where is the uh, non-depolarizing agents like rocuronium uh, compete with the
1: estylcholine.
0: It doesn't depolarize. There's, you will not see fasciculations. It's a little bit longer in onset than the succinylcholine.
1: So a couple i things um, just to add to that exactly. So... The succinylcholine is a depolarizer because the muscle is depolarized. The muscle is activated. Um, The non-activating or non-depolarizing agents, and for the purposes of our talk today, we're gonna stick with rocuronium. Uh, There's others, uh, vecuronium being one that really aren't applicable to 911 EMS transport uh, due to length of action and and timing issues. If you're out there and you're doing really long transports, uh, uh, flat medicine, type situations, uh, long transfers, then you may have a patient that's on vecuronium for continued paralysis. But for the initial intubation, delayed sequence or rapid sequence, we want quick acting agents. So really there's, there's only two that we're gonna talk about today and that's the depolarizing one that we've all used and know well, succinylcholine and rocuronium, which many of you out there are using rocuronium. You look through protocols, listen to talks, go to meetings. There are a lot of systems that are, that are moving to rocuronium. We just wanna talk about the, the pros and the cons of both. So let's start out with succinylcholine. Again, like Dr. Dixon mentioned, it is a direct binder of this acetylcholine receptor. If you look at the chemical structure, it looks very similar. So it activates that muscle. It activates the end plate. The muscle contracts, doesn't let go. So it basically runs it out, and then you have paralysis. So and that's you're... why the, during the waiting period for that 60 to 90 seconds of onset, we see the eyelids flicker and the forearms and the calves, chest wall muscles quiver. Right, if that. you
0: can if you can think about the last person that you, you intubated using succinylcholine, it makes sense to us, doesn't it? It starts in the smaller muscle groups of the of the facial muscles, the eyelids, and things, and, and spreads to the larger muscle groups. So I look at two things. Okay, see, I like to look right at their face, and I always want to intubate or do an airway maneuver. I uncover the chest completely, A, so I can see when uh, they've stopped dropping their diaphragm. So the respiratory effort, their ventilatory effort has ceased, and then to see when it starts up again. So I, we have end title, we have these other things, but we I like to have a second check and confirm that with a clinical exam. So. Everybody I intubate is completely uncovered from the waist up. So I can watch those.
1: I agree 100%. Stepped into sucks, sucks no choline here a little bit. I'm going to rewind just a bit. What's the ideal paralytic agent? What, what makes, what makes a paralytic agent useful for us in an EMS or ED setting? And quick onset is important. We can't, it can't take forever to act. And I was taught quick offset. Or short, short length of action was also ideal. We'll talk about a little bit about why that may not be the case as we move forward, and we want easy dosing and few side effects. So that's sort of the way we're going to approach our discussion through succinylcholine and rocuronium: onset, offset, side effects, and dosing. So for SUX a dose is one and a half milligrams per kilogram, uh, or I think most people probably, if they are honest, dose 150 of SUX. I know I do a lot of times. That actual dose range can be between one and a half and two milligrams per kilogram. So for most folks, 150 is gonna be okay. The time of onset for succinylcholine, 45 to 60 seconds is generally accepted. And length of action, six to eight minutes. Uh, And again, it's a full depolarizing agent such that you do see fasciculations as the medication is acting. We'll get to a little bit of theory and sort of a change in approach to these medications as we move along. I structured this to where we talk about the, phys- the pharmacology together, the contraindications and the side effects together, and then we'll move on to a little bit of debate towards the end. So tell us some about Rocuronium Pharmacology. So
0: Rocuronium has a, he, he's gonna make me do this because I told him I didn't want him to get in the geeky weeds. I like to use one number. I don't like to remember like ranges of numbers. Um, So I use one milligram per kilogram Um, the onset of that's between 45 and 60 seconds It's about the same as succinylcholine and the length of action. That's where the kicker is, right? It's about 45 minutes to an hour uh, For them to recover from this it is non depolarizing. So to me, it's a trade-off case I think when we were trained, uh, especially in our era, right? I mean, I'm sure everybody has heard it that you know Why do we use succinylcholine just in case? Right, so just in case you can't intubate and you can't, uh, you know, you can't get it done. Gosh, you can wake the patient up. Well, it's really difficult for us in the field to cancel a case. That's first and foremost. And B, we should be experts at basic airway management at our our you know back to the basics tool belt that ultimately bails a lot of these patients out. I always say the most important skill in airway management is not intubation. It is your basic airway skills. It is face mashing, bag valve valve masking, OPMPs, placing supraglottics, right? Things that really bail you out in a pinch. So I think that sucks got so popular with us because as a service, uh, EM and EMS especially have have matured through this, but this was our kind of get out of jail free card. We thought, well, gosh, you know, this is a short acting. uh, So even if we can't get it, we've, we've you know we can do something else we can wake them up we can do some i think that as that we have matured as a service as a specialty in EMS I think that's less worry to, to me now as a medical director. I'm not that bothered by the 45 or 60 minutes uh, duration of action of the non-depolarizers. I know we're going we're yeah. to talk about some debating stuff. Yeah, our, we'll, we'll talk about that in, in a second. End, hold, but, hold
1: that thought. I, I think those thoughts are 100% valid, and I think we'll echo those again in a second. Why is there a difference in length? Suc- succinylcholine is broken down by acetylcholinesterase. Uh, rock has to be excreted. So our body has the tools to naturally break down succinylcholine, so it's shorter acting. Uh, the rock has to unbind and then be excreted renally uh, or, or hepatically. So that is, uh, that's the reason for the timing difference. When, going back to the, the initial part of Dr. Dixon's uh, statements there, you know, when, when I trained when he trained, when a lot of you trained out there, the idea was, was that we really want a quick onset because we want to sedate and paralyze as quickly as possible. And then we want to intubate with our best look very rapidly. And then the patient needs to be breathing on their own as quickly as possible. Um, so some of the variations in rock dosing were part of the reason why in that paradigm, it was less than desirable because I learned a rock dose of 0.7. And so with 0.7 milligrams per kilogram, your time of onset was quite a bit longer than sucks. So if you were in a paradigm of old rapid sequence intubation, as opposed to delayed sequence intubation, which I did not learn until you know the last two to three years, you didn't want to delay, right? You wanted everything to go snap, snap, snap. Whereas if you're pre-oxygenating, augmenting pressure with push dose pressors, you're Using the rule of 15s and all the things we talked about on other podcasts, that time of onset for rock even if it's pretty darn close to sucks, isn't as big a deal. And we're going to come back to why the length of onset of rock probably isn't as big a deal either as we move along. What are some contraindications and side effects? I'll give you the easy one. What, what are the contraindications and side effects to rot? Right.
0: Really,
1: really, none. Really, not I any. mean, there's none.
0: Uh, I, I think that that's the, the kicker, right? Is we traded that, that time of onset and that time of offset with the known downside that we're gonna to get to, which is the potassium issue with
1: it. Yeah, and that's, that's and just one of many. So potassium is gonna be an issue with succinylcholine. And this is where knowing a little bit about physiology can help you remember these things. How is the muscle in plate activated? It's activated through a sodium and potassium channel that opens with stimulation. Well. The depolarizing agent, succinylcholine, activates that receptor. Roc- ro- rocuronium doesn't. It acts, it acts without activation or polarization. So, with succinylcholine, you have sodium potassium flux. Where does the potassium flux? It fluxes out of the muscle cells. And if we have our entire, you know, muscle cell. Bulk. Bulk. <laughs> that's the really scientific word there, bulk. I couldn't think of anything good, so he saved me. If we have that in all of our muscle dumping out potassium, that's not an insignificant amount. And where is potassium deadly? When does it give us trouble? It gives us trouble when it's extra extracellular. So patients with succinylcholine have real issues with hyperkalemia.
0: Right. And given the, the uh, propensity we have in, in this specialty to see patients that have an inclination to have elevated potassiums i.e people on hemodialysis that are non-compliant their hemodialysis people in dka that are sick that have a big shift people that have rhabdo or excited delirium this is actually a pretty big subset of patients i would argue and and this sucks likely puts some patients at risk if we don't recognize those clinical entities and and make that decision to use a different agent rather than the depolarizer
1: and and i think if we're honest with ourselves there's a lot of peri-intubation cardiac arrests that occur that we may not look for because we're not running 12 leads continuously we're k-related
0: right i would agree i think that if you looked for this in any system you'd probably find some uh, harm from succinylcholine So, you know, when we talk about succinylcholine also, as a medical director, you have to teach this, and you have to teach all these contraindications. You have to remember kind of all these contraindications, which are, you know, old burns and infections, neuromuscular disease like muscular dystrophy, ALS or MS, old spinal cord injuries don't do well with this, Uh, rhabdo we talked about, end-stage renal disease, the potential effect on raising ICP in blunt trauma patients, blunt heads. So I, I mean, if you look at all these downsides, honestly, I look at this and I say, "Gosh, as a medical director, why didn't I think about this pivot to an all non-depolarizing agent a little bit sooner?"
1: It, it you know, I went in to this putting this podcast together and looking through this information as a 100% of the time staunch succinylcholine user and defender, because without a doubt, that's the way that I was taught and it's what I was comfortable with. I mean, you didn't even hit on. Malignant hyperthermia, we talk about that. Rare, but another contraindication with sucks. Masseter spasm, we see with succinylcholine at times. Bradycardia with succinylcholine, dose dependent, didn't know this before looking this up, but M2 muscarinic receptors in the heart are activated by succinylcholine and bradycardia can also occur. So if you've got a super sick hyperkalemic patient that you're intubating with succinylcholine, an ESRD patient, you don't know their potassium in the field. You give them a big dose of sucks you're gonna have almost a double whammy potassium release and more hyperkalemia and potential cardiac effects of bradycardia so there's just and even if these things are very rare when you take them all as a group i don't think the number is insignificant that are going to experience at least some potential side effects uh, from from succinylcholine so You know, Yeah, sucks is ideal in the classic teaching. We only have a certain amount of time. We want to do it quickly. We want to be breathing again. If I can't get the airway, the patient will wake up and breathe on their own and I'll be okay. Um, But if you think about what happens when that patient wakes up after sucks, like Dr. Dixon said, they're not waking up in an operating room with the ability to be extubated. You still got to manage whatever disaster they had before you started, because we're not intubating patients in a pre-hospital or ED setting in a planned, nice, quiet environment with the with the iPod playing our favorite playlist, Right? We're right. intubating. This is,
0: this is not Dara Torres. We're intubating for an elective toenail replacement.
1: This is this is a, a crashing patient. So going back to the onset, the length, and the side effect profile, we've beat the side effect profile up. I, I really think that couldn't be more obvious that rock is preferable. Onset, I think we need to approach it from a delayed sequence intubation standpoint and not a rapid sequence, because that's the way we approach our airways here at MCHD. And if we're taking our time, we're using our adjuncts, we're hyperoxygenating, augmenting our blood pressure, the difference in sixty seconds and ninety seconds or sixty seconds and seventy five seconds with sucks and rock really becomes irrelevant
0: it's completely irrelevant now because i like to take 16 90 seconds and and our data here i think dr jarvis's data from his annals paper lots of stuff that is out there on mcrit that dr weingard is is uh produced have all been very very consistent which is as we slow the process down patients do better they have less complications and we're more successful because we slowed ourselves down so I think as far as argument, the quicker is better for sucks. I think we can check that one off as a myth buster. So So, that one's been myth So
1: bust bust the third one. I think the third one is is the one that I would say making this change still gives me a little bit of the willies until I really think about it objectively and, and fairly. And that's the length of action. And the worst thing that can happen in a difficult airway or a failing airway is the patient to start waking up. It's worse than having them relaxed. It may, it turns them in now to a thrashing, difficult airway.
0: It's using more of their metabolic demand, so they're desatting even at a quicker pace than they were before. Absolutely, agree. you
1: should have your plan B, your plan C in order because you had time to think about it. Because you slowed down, because you've learned delayed sequence uh, techniques as a pro as opposed to a you know rapid sequence uh, crazy initiation and, and and management. So you should be able to move through your your thought process. Some of the old school arguments, you can't do a neural exam for 60, 75, 90 minutes. I mean, what's worse for an ICH, a neural exam delay or prolonged hypoxia because you're wrestling the patient? And I would say that a neural exam delay is a lot more preferable.
0: No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that a lot of these patients, if we're talking about these sick, sick patients that are coming in um, with pretty severe pathology enough to get a pre-hospital tracheal tube, um, their, their workup is going to take a fair amount of time. And and I would argue to say that there's not one of those patients who's not going to get a CAT scan. So if I bash you in the head and you have such a bad head injury that I have to intubate you, um, I totally believe in the clinical exam, but so you're paralyzed and you go to ED, I, no matter what your clinical exam is, you are still going to get imaged, right? Doesn't change my therapy in ED. So i i i would agree that it is a little bit of a downfall but i don't think it's that clinically significant and i think if you if you look at the some of the sucks arguments the anti-sucks arguments we made early on and you counter you, you use this part of the argument and say well gosh but i can't get a great neuro exam for 40 minutes or whatever i think that the the risk benefit favors the rock.
1: Even if you even if you take that out and say sixty minutes to ninety minutes, by the time you have transport time calculated in, transfer, handoff, primary initial secondary primary survey. secondary survey, CT of head, neck, abdomen, pelvis, and a chest in the in the in the multi system trauma patients evaluation, phone calls, uh, consultations, I would argue that very few of those are going to be done in less than 75 to 90 minutes. Really. I agree. By the time everything's prepped and ready and the OR is ready. So I just, I think that the downside with sucks is so much greater as far as side effects and the fact of reawake may not be the godsend that we always thought it was, and in fact, I think your get out of jail free card is is a perfect analogy. We it was almost more to make us comfortable, you know, because it out of habit. And you know, the other the other group to think about in their old, kind of old school arguments against rock or what if the patient's still seizing? And I think that's an easy one to deal with. Just if the patient was intubated for status epilepticus and you intubate them in rocuronium, then aggressively treat them with anti seizure medication post intubation. And right. for most, no, of, most of us more. out there, that's going to be uh, aggressive. Yeah,
0: because we really don't know where the cutoff is, do we, Casey? I mean, if you have that 54-year-old with end-stage renal disease, misdialysis, they've got a wonky, wide, ugly-looking ECG that's bradycardic, are you really going to risk using sucks in that extra, you know, bump you're going to get in the potassium that that's going to be the bump that pushes them over the cliff to me that's a that's a bad deal for the patient that's a bad bargain for the patient yeah and i think that's a
1: and you could take a less obvious one the seizing patient that i just mentioned are they seizing from a tox reason uh, is it an excited delirium patient that they're also metabolically acidotic with potassium of six and a half so many of our patients are complex and multifactorial. As far as their d- disease processes and, and diagnoses, I think the less side effects we can have, the safer we're gonna be.
0: Can you talk a little bit from the chiefs? We got some chiefs out there and, and uh, chief officers to talk about the, uh, the operational side of it, cost difference, shelf life, things like that. Is there a big operational difference with um, stocking a rockaronium versus a succinylcholine?
1: No, I mean, the cost difference is minimal. Uh, the shelf life, rock actually 12 weeks versus two weeks at room temperature. Uh, versus sucks. so our, our shelf life is is much improved with rock uh, and with any of these whether we whether you're paralyzing with rocuronium succinylcholine or some other agent foundational component to any discussion on paralytics and, and post-intubation care is that we have to adequately sedate our patients we have to adequately sedate them to intubate them that's common sense but we cannot fall back on that old school give them paralytics to make them still while we're in transport because that equates, in my mind, to torture, right? So we have to make sure that we Absolutely what we want to avoid. We want to make sure that we're using whatever your protocol deems appropriate. And if it's a seizure patient, we probably want to continue with benzos aggressively. If, for us, we like ketamine a lot here at MCHD, so if we're using ketamine for our post-intubation sedation management, going to be specific to your protocols out there, but just remember that a still patient... Can still be an alert patient. Absolutely, and to,
0: absolutely, and that may be something that many services need to bring into their clinical guidelines. If they make a switch to a longer-acting agent, that they're going to have to add a post-intubation, not only an induction dose of sedative, but maybe a post-intubation dose. So I'd say, for sure, a post-intubation dose to make sure these patients are not aware and paralyzed. Bad, bad karma.
1: Our time's running out. We're going to close it up with some. Uh, Quick quick hitter take-home points as always. Just like we started out, I want to finish. This decision is not one to be taken lightly. This is one that you should know your drugs, you should know your mode of action, your time of onset, your time of offset, your side effects, your it's the most important, the most significant, the most dangerous decision I think that we make as EMS ED providers. And if we don't know this one backwards and forwards, I'm not sure what we should know backwards and forwards. So this is one that I think we really have to take it seriously and know the meds that are involved here. Sucks depolarizes, so that's why you see fasciculations. It opens the sodium-potassium channels. That's why the K goes up. Broken down at the synapse, so it's a quicker off. So it's broken down right at the muscle junction, whereas the rocuronium has to be excreted. And if you use sucks consider those danger patients who are the danger patients you might need to lay off on
0: yeah potential hyper-k neuromuscular disease old burns at anyone that presents uh, bradycardic
1: and you can throw on malignant hyperthermia masseter spasm all kinds did, of other things did you things do that for lee you added can,
0: malignant hyperthermia it's in
1: everyone's list on okay, every protocol okay, it's on okay. a, on every test i've never seen it but it's it's out i've there never seen it either but way. it is on a
0: lot of tests and
1: i agree by saying that i'll get a malignant <laughs> hyperthermia next shift and when it comes down to a clear winner here it comes down to a I com- i think a comparison and a weight in your mind whether or not you favor rocks decrease side effects versus sucks quicker offset and I'm not even sure that you, – you, we, we could argue about it um, collegially, I'm sure. I'm not even sure that Sucks' quick, quick offset is really a benefit. But if you wanted to take that side, I really feel like that's the only, that's the only potential advantage that you, you would have if we wanted to argue this, and that would be a quicker offset. And I would argue that I'm not sure you want the people waking up when you're proceeding to crike because if you can't get it with Sucks – then you're probably proceeding to a crack in an emergency airway situation. And I would say that I would want to have them as still as possible for that progression from A to B to C in my plan list.
0: Right, and, and that's a great place to finish up. So always have that A to B to C to D mentality. Have it set in your mind and verbalize it to your team.
1: Moving to plan B is not a failure. Not moving from plan A to plan B when you should is.
0: Couldn't agree more.
1: So we leave it at that thanks dr dixon thanks to all the listeners out there if you have questions or comments this is one that potentially be perceived as a little divisive so please send us your thoughts at the podcast email thanks again to andy for editing our drivel and we will talk to you all soon